have been doing, uh, the Acts of the, Apostle, of the Apostles, in fact it's really some people call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit's doing in the Christian's life at this time uh, here too. So we're going to be at Acts 17, so if you have your Bible, open up, we're going to be jumping around just uh, once after that, so we're first starting at Acts 17 uh, and it's verses 16 to 21 and it's being uh, read out of the ESV version here today. I'll read and then uh, Shabu will speak to us. What a great story, what incredible things we've learnt so far uh, in Acts and particularly about our own uh, witness uh, to people as well as uh, both Josh and Andrea have done in a simple form this morning uh, just to each of us to encourage us and to witness to Jesus. So here we go from verse 16. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopolis. I knew I'd get that wrong, Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Paul addressed the Areopagus. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. Or even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out of their midst. And then from Acts 18 verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Thanks, John. Uh, ooh. Let me just... We'll see how we go with technology today, hey? You can see that? Anyone here? Yeah, good. All right, cool. 
Uh, great to uh, have you with us, particularly if you're once again visiting Canterbury Gardens. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, if you're a family uh, uh, of the two uh, wonderful people who are getting baptised today, um, it's great to have you here with us. We're blessed to have you here. I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we come before you now and can spend this time as we continue our time of worship. Lord, I pray that you would settle all our hearts to hear what you're saying to us both individually but, and for those of us who know you as well, what you're saying to us corporately as a church. Reveal more of yourself today, not for my sake but for your glory, and let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you through your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Uh, if you're visiting Canterbury Gardens, as a church, we've been going through this little book called Acts. Um, Acts is kind of like, um, if you want to know uh, why the church started, why do we even exist here in this place in Kilsyth, uh, what are the reasonings behind it, the history behind it, uh, Acts is uh, a letter. It's lettered by a guy called Luke. He's writing to a guy called Theophilus. And he's kind of laying into account how the Christian faith continues after the physical resurrection of Jesus particularly through some believers, some uh, what they call apostles or uh, disciples. And so these men are predominantly going around and starting these churches all around the world at that time. And what we've been doing is we've been going through different little storylines and we've come to a certain area in where this uh, particular prominent leader is coming to the forefront a lot. His name is Paul. And so this morning we come up to a section in this letter, in this uh, account, this true account, and we as Christians here believe the Bible is not just some sort of little cool little book or like a historical document. It is that, but it's much more than that. We believe it's actually quite relevant even for today. This day. This day, this Sunday. That those of you who may be a bit skeptical or curious or maybe not even interested in the Christian faith, we want you to know that God has a purpose for you this morning. He wants to speak to you through His Word. And this morning I want to unpack for us this term that Christians use a lot. It's a term called worship. I'm not sure if you know what that means. Uh, I don't know if you've really thought about it, uh, but it is something that is quite prevalent throughout this passage that John just read for us. One of the big themes is that all of us, all of human beings, all of mankind have actually been born to worship. And then in light of that, I want to, for those of us who know Jesus, what does that mean for us as well? And for those who don't know Jesus... I want to leave something with you to think about. So this idea of born to worship. Uh, now, I, I, um, I love one of the greatest football teams in the world named Hawthorne. And that we've had the glorious thing to win three times in a row. It's been wonderful to watch. Now, as much as I love footy, it is just a game. And, but the thing I love watching on a grand final day is when the players are playing it, the final siren's done and the winners are there on the podium... The camera pans to the losers. Now, sure, I'm always on the winning side the last three years in a row. Did I say that? Just saying that again. Um, but in light of that, what I find interesting is not to do with, oh, look at those losers, ha, 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 Hawks won. No. You see them. They're all on the ground. Most of them are, some of them are usually crying. The coach is sort of walking around, and, and if they had a really big loss, they're even more devastated. There's something going on than much more than just an AFL game. See, I think there's a, there's a thing about worship. They've been training all year. 
They've given up and sacrificed many things for this cup that they want to hold. And when that doesn't happen, something's gone. Something's missing. All their self-worth and who they are, they aim to be the number one players, the number one team, hasn't happened. Christians think that's this idea of worship. Now, I'm guessing... Most of you, maybe you do, but I'm guessing there's no room in your house that is designated to some sort of deity or some sort of God that you bring every morning some fruit or flowers or whatever way of worshipping. You probably don't have that. Maybe the thing that you have, because it's really in vogue and cool these days, is to have some sort of little figurine of Buddha in your garden. And if you're a real Buddhist, you wouldn't do that because it's very wrong to put that. But whatever your view is, about idols, you might think that's a bit foreign, we don't really do that, but I want to argue that there is a reality that we all worship something or someone. See, the Apostle Paul, he's come into this city, and what he's been doing prior to that, he's been arguing and and presenting the case of the Christian faith. And there's this great summary in the early chapters 17, verses 3 to 4, where he says, he's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Paul has been going through his missionary journey. He's making this very clear to say, hey, this Jesus, this is the one, this is the true God. This is the one and only one that you and I are born to worship. And this is the one that you, all of you have been waiting for. Actually, all of Scripture, the whole Old Testament for the Christian Bible here is... All of it has been pointing to this one person, to this one particular Messiah. And then he was actually physically raised from the dead. It's not just a story. It really happened. And in the Christian faith, we celebrate that during Easter. And so Paul comes. And as he responds and he proclaims his truth, there's usually two responses. There are those who are like, yeah, I'm quite curious about this. I want to know more. And there are those who are, I don't agree with you saying, Paul, so we're going to violently chase you out of the city. And so some of them did. And, but at this point, sometimes Paul would head off to prison, but this time he escapes. He escapes from the city and he arrives. He arrives in a place called Athens. It's a historical city. You can look it up. It actually existed. And while he's there, he's waiting for his ministry team. Those two guys that he mostly traveled with, and he's waiting for them. But while he's there, something happens in his heart, in his being. And you see that in verse 16, and when John read it out to you, it said, his spirit was provoked within him. Now, that sounds really strange, but what's going on is to say, hey, as he's sitting there waiting, does something in him start stirring? Something in his very being starts moving. Someone in him starts stirring in him to say, hey, look at these idols. There's something not right about this. This does not look right. This is not right. And this whole city and all these people are worshipping these idols. Now, Athens is a historical city, actually existed. It, and it was at that time, prior to Paul arriving, it was the center of the world. This is where a lot of people like um, Plato and Socrates, these Aristotle, these philosophers, and these philosophers, even to this day, have shaped of in, uh, modern history, came from. This is where they taught their stuff. But after that, as Paul arrives, Athens wasn't as uh, of the center. But... At the same time, the culture, the beauty, the pursuit of knowledge, and the importance of being political, one as, and is important, but it still had a significant place. So this guy, Paul, he's walking around. As he's walking around, he starts seeing these gods, these idols. 
But he also noticed they're being worshipped. Now, it was known at that time, historically, when they said idols, it wasn't like just a bunch of few sort of spread around sort of little areas. There's about 30,000 different idols in this city. And to them, it wasn't just, oh, that's a nice piece of artwork, that's wonderful structure. No, this is the whole being, and all of their life was revolved around worshipping these idols, these objects. It was said by a historian of the time that it was much easier to find a god than it is to find a man in Athens, because there were so many. Now, on first reading, we might read this and go, well, Paul's just being a religious fanatic. He's been one of those Christian people who's just being annoying, doesn't like that other people are worshipping these other gods. And I see the language that's used here, it's like saying there's this stirring in his heart to say, this is not right. There's something really wrong about this picture. It's the language of almost being jealous. He's jealous for something. He's jealous because he's noticing that these people are actually worshipping idols. And this jealousy can be traced, this word can be traced throughout the whole story of the Bible where God is jealous. The creator of the universe, the Christian God, is jealous as people turn away from him and worship other gods. Now that sounds like a God who has a really issue with self-esteem, has a really low self-esteem issue. But that's not it, see? What it is, is this God created human beings, and in light of that, he created human beings to be in relationship with him. And he knows that if you and I go and pursue other things to worship, they won't satisfy. And he's jealous, because he wants you to worship him, because he knows you will only find satisfaction in him as you worship him. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but you and I have been born and we're wired to worship We are wired to worship. And for those of us who have grown up in Christian circles, when we think about worship, we just think about singing usually. But as an aspect of it, it's much more than that. It's actually your whole being. And here in this picture, you have this, this drawn picture for us where Paul is saying these people are actually turning their worship to these things that are made by man's hand, these idols. Because we're all to worship just as the men and women of Athens at that time. Now, this idea of worship, this idol, well, I found this really helpful when I saw this recently. This guy by the name of Tim Keller, he's an author, he's a pastor, and in his book, he wrote a book about idolatry, and he, he defines this idea of idols in this way. He says, what is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. See, you and I were designed and made to worship. But what happened was something changed. See, since the day, the first breath that you and I were given, our hearts were turned automatically and deliberately to worship everything else but God. Christians call this term called sin. Sin is much more than saying, doing bad things. Actually, sin is ultimately saying, hey God, I'm in control. I don't want you to be the boss of my life. I've got this. But in doing that, what we do is we turn our hearts and our wills to other things. And we chase and pursue things rather than God. And we hope to find satisfaction in those things or those people rather than God. 
And ultimately, what it becomes is it becomes a worship issue. And so we chase after these things or these people in the hope to find um, peace and love and hope in these things. But all we're doing ultimately is turning our worship to ourselves. And in this true story, the Apostle Paul, who's in this city, he sees this and he's provoked with jealousy to say, hey, you guys, you're missing out. That's not who you're meant to worship. You're created to worship someone, not something. And so he sees the city filled. He's moved. And so he goes and engages with these people. So he engages with both the religious and he starts sharing about this Jesus, this gospel. And then he, as he's doing that, he goes to a place called the marketplace. The marketplace was known at that time where the most prominent speakers and stuff would come and um, just share their views, their values, their philosophies. And it was kind of the place where you would go to find the latest crazes of philosophies. And here is Paul and he's sharing this. And some people come, two groups in particular, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, I'm not sure if the Epicureans or the Stoics have a Facebook page anymore that you can look and like. When he talks about Epicureans, the first group, the Epicureans is not the same thing as your lifestyle magazine that you can order online. The Epicureans ultimately were a group of people who actually um, denied uh, this thought that there is life actually after death. There's nothing more than the life you have. In another way, they were kind of materialists. What they did was they lived life to the fullest. They wanted to exceed everything, chasing after pleasure, making sure that you lived this life to the fullest 100%. Their motto, in some sense, was eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That was their thinking. Now, I don't know if that's changed today, has it? I'd argue it's still around. Now, that was a philosophy that was still there and is still now. There are those of us who live our life in such a way. The other group was the Stoics. They actually followed a particular philosopher. What they believed was that everything around them was of a God nature. So that would be the tree, the, the, the tables in front of you, the chairs that you're sitting on. It all sort of connected to God. But in light of that, they also had this idea that, you know... You need to also just get on with life because when bad things happen, you just got to suck it up and get on with it. There was a sense of apathy. They didn't believe there was any hope or peace or restoration. There was no uh, kind of what is to come beyond this life in that sense. They just thought, well, this is the life we have. We just be spiritual and accept what's around us. We accept what life even gives us. They were also known to be quite stoic in that they didn't actually uh, show a lot of emotion. They didn't like to have too much fun. That's what they were known for. I think it sounds very Aussie to me. This idea of how, ah, oh well, what can you do? Just go with it. Ah, well, mate, that's life, isn't it? Just get on with it. You know, what can you say? Ah, if you're really Aussie, she'll be right, mate. So these two groups come and they face Paul and they want to know. And what they're hearing in this marketplace, as Paul is proclaiming this gospel about Jesus, uh, they're going, oh, this is interesting. We've never heard this before. It sounds like he's talking about two gods, one called Jesus and one called the resurrection. Let's find out from this guy who's brought this new, uh, new kind of teaching. Uh, we want to know. We don't want to miss out. We don't want to miss out on this because we are who we are with the Athenians. And so he says to them, come, we want want you to present this to us. 
present to us where all the other great philosophers have stood before you in a place called the Arabicus. I haven't said that wrong, John, thanks. Otherwise known as Mars Hill. It was an open space, it was on a hill. This is where the Supreme Court was also held. So Paul comes and presents this case to these philosophers. Now the philosophers are there because they're not really in some sense interested to find out what Paul has to say, but they don't want to miss out. Could, this could be the next philosophy, they want to miss out on the latest craze. So Paul stands before them. And I love what Paul does. Paul gets into their space and he openly just shares from the front who this God is. Paul wants to remind them, yeah, you guys were uh, shaped and engaged to created for worship. But see, there's a deep unrest going in you. There's such a deep unrest going in you. But I love Paul's attitude. For those of us who are of the Christian faith, notice he doesn't go in with an arrogance or pride, thinking that he's any better. What's moving in him is this deep provoking of the spirit to say, hey, this is not right. Go tell them of what is the right way to worship. Not of arrogance or pride and humility he goes and he just shares, both to the women and the men of Athens. He doesn't sit there and just get annoyed at them, get frustrated. He doesn't sit back in his little balcony as he looks at all the idols and puts on Facebook on his posts and timeline saying, takes a photo and says, that's just ridiculous, these Athenians. They have no idea what they're missing out on. Because in him something's happened, he knows they're missing out. So he goes into their space, into their world, and wants to share. And if you are someone here who may not even believe in the Christian faith, you might even be thinking there's nothing much more to this life than the life that you have here. I want you to tell you now, we at Canterbury Gardens want to tell you now, there is much more to this life. So much more. So much more. And you may be even thinking that this Christian stuff is a figment of the imagination. And you might even think that, well, since this life is all I have, I'm going to live to the most fullest I can enjoy of it. You may even think that this Christian faith, oh man, this sounds so restrictive, sounds cultish. I mean, they're taking two people who are willingly getting dunked in water. That sounds really weird. There's so much more. So much more. And if you're a follower of Jesus... This question of idol and worship is still impacted for us today. Because you and I are still prone to worship something or someone else than Jesus Christ. Our hearts, our affections and will are turned to those things. But whether if you know Jesus or don't know Jesus, I want you to know this. That you and I have been born and wired to worship. And in particular, we've been born to worship someone. And today, our worship might not necessarily be idols, but it can be replacements of those things. Our job, our lifestyle, sexual pursuits, sports. And what happens is our worship turns around to something that is actually focused on really temporal things rather than on someone who is eternal. And that can happen to anyone, whether Christian or someone who doesn't know Jesus. And for those of us who do know Jesus... There's this constant fight for us to have our affections constantly drawn back to him, to worship him. Who are we born to worship? Who are we born to turn our affections and all our being to? Well, let me show you as the Apostle Paul shows in verses 22 to 34. 
Paul, what he does is he goes into their space, into their world. And he's been walking around and he notices something. In the midst of all these idols, he notices an altar. And on this altar, it says, this inscription says to an unknown God. Commentators say it's probably meaning like, hey, uh, they didn't want to miss out. If they missed out on a God, just in case they got the bad uh, stuff out of that, if they missed out on someone, they want to just create an altar there just to cover all their bases. I've got a good friend of mine who she describes as a spiritualist. She lives in San Diego and she teaches meditation classes and so on. But on her wall in her room, she has these pictures. And the pictures include Jesus, Muhammad, uh, Muhammad, sort of old picture of a Muslim guy. I'm not even sure what Muhammad looked like. Um, but him, there's like Jesus, Muhammad, there's Krishna, there's Buddha, there's all these different pictures of these different gods. And she's covering them all because she says, oh, she doesn't want to miss out on them. And here you have these Athenians who didn't want to miss out. They have this inscription of this unknown god, this altar. And Paul says this interesting thing. He says, hey, you know that unknown god, that altar that you have in your town, in your city? Let me tell you, he has made himself known. He has made himself known. Because he is the one and only true god. And then he starts unpacking by saying, what does that mean? He says, he's the one who has created the world and everything in it. He's the one who is the Lord of heaven and of earth. And unlike the the gods that you see in your marketplace, he doesn't need a residence. He's not stuck here in this temple or this ground. He's not stuck here like you and me. Nor does he need some sort of some people to come and serve him because he's enabled to serve himself. He doesn't need any human hand to serve him. He does not need anything because of who he is. He is God because he is the one who ultimately is the true source of life. To that point that even you and I sit here, even the Athenians as they're listening in, that breath that we take is from him. He is the God who is above all the gods. And he's the one who's intimately, even though he's above everything, he's intimately involved in the lives of people. And he shows that through a, sort of like a mini Bible lesson. And he starts with this idea of one man. And through this one man, the story of God and his relationship with mankind is displayed. And it's throughout the story of the Bible. The Bible is a constant reminder that the God that we serve, the God of the Christian God, is not some God out there, sort of far away. This God is intimately involved in our lives. To the point that he's the one who set the boundaries. And he's like saying to the Athenians, hey, the only reason why you exist even today, even this city Athens exists because he permitted it to exist. And he continues to show them and say, hey, this is who you were born to worship. This is the one your affections are drawn to. And he says, but you've gone in somewhere else. But, but he's saying, hey, through all these different avenues, God's revealing himself. But what he's doing is it's like a blind person searching for this treasure. Or it's like this person with their Pokemon Go thing looking for the latest Pokemon to find that little Pokemon character. They're going and finding it, but this is this investigation kind of language that Paul is saying. They're going around finding and eventually you come. But this God is so amazing that he doesn't just stand off and wait for you to be finding him. He actually comes into your space and my space. He's actually not far off. And in that moment, Paul, it's like he's uh, showing a PowerPoint slide, if you can just imagine, at Athens. And in that moment, he pulls up the Instagram account 
of a guy who's known as Epimenides, and he quotes him. He puts it up on the screen and says, In him we live and move and have one our being. Then he goes to another account, a Pinterest account possibly, because it sounds very arty, it's a poet, by the name of Artis. He says, For indeed we are his offspring. What he's saying to is, hey, the only reason that you're in a, you Athenians are existing is actually not just for yourselves. It's actually not there just to be sera sera and we'll just get on with life. No, you have been made image bearers of the creator God. You're actually his offspring. In light of that, not only are you image bearers, you have been created for a purpose. See, it's so much more than what you can imagine. And in the past, you'd be ignorant about it. And Paul says to them, hey, listen, the time has come. The time has come. How has the time come? Well, he's saying, hey, what's happened now is God has ignored that and now he's putting you guys all on notice, all of us on notice. Because the day has come. There's a day of judgment coming. And what he's calling these Athenians to say, turn away from your worship of these idols and worship the one that you were created. Turn your affections to the one that you were created for. Because there's a day coming. Not only just a day, someone else is coming back. A judge. Who is the judge? Well, his name is Jesus. Paul is saying to that group, hey, you worship all these things that are made by your hands. Let me tell you, there's one who is above all of those things, but yet he's not so far away. He's actually come intimately into this world, and it's really shown through the one who arrived. His name was Jesus. And he says to him, turn to him. And that is the same for today. I mean, you heard Andrew and Josh share about their lives. They shared openly about what they thought gave them security. What they, their affections and their heart chased after. But there was a moment for some or over a season for the other where Jesus revealed himself and said, No, you were designed to worship me. And they turned to him. And this afternoon in a little bit we're going to see an outward symbol of what that means that their hearts now are wired to worship the one and only and this means the same for you and the same for me see if you don't know jesus jesus has been drawing him drawing you to himself he's been drawing you to himself every day maybe even today so he's the one who is actually here to tell you through himself, through his word, through people around you who are Christians, that he's making himself known. The unknown God in your heart that you're yearning to worship is making himself known. Because your heart and my heart was designed to worship him. Why don't you turn to him? Why don't you hear that voice that is calling in your hearts and respond to him today? Because, friends, I'm telling you, he is coming back again. This time when he comes back, he's not coming as a little kid born in a stable. Neither is he going to be hanging up on a cross. He's coming back as a king, the ruling king, the one who rules and reigns, as a judge. And until then, then that time, that moment, there will not be a second chance. Maybe today is that chance for you. If he's speaking to you, will you respond to him, respond to Jesus? And if you know Jesus, 
If you think and believe that he is your savior, you believe that in all of your hearts, the question for you today is, is he still the one that you worship? Or has something or someone else taken place? When I talk about worship, I'm not talking about just on Sundays or at small group or when you say grace over your lunch or dinner. I'm talking about worship every day or every moment or something else taking your place, that place. Is it your job? Is it the pursuit of someone? Or maybe it's that pursuit of that dream house. I mean, they're all good things. They're not bad things. But if they become the ultimate thing, they're actually really becoming a God thing. And that can even happen with your kids or grandkids. Maybe it's that constant pursuit of finding the other. This past week, a few weeks ago, uh, Beck and I went on a holiday. It was right near the beach. The beach I love. I love um, particularly the coastline of uh, Melbourne, the peninsula. And uh, just went out for a bit of a, uh, a run. And I was running and you come to the end of this boardwalk to the beach. And I stood there and I was just thinking about, you know, how things go in my life. I'm like, you know... It's really good. The church, it's exciting. God's doing stuff. You know, yeah, we've got our challenges, all those things. And I don't know if it was God, but there's this thought that came to my mind. But Shabu, do you love me more than your church? I'm a pastor. I had that moment where I stood there on the sand and I remembered and I was reminded again, Shabu, you replaced your ministry, which is a good thing. I love doing what I do because God has called me to it, but... You've placed me. You've placed me with your ministry and you worship your ministry more than me. And I had to turn and surrender that to Jesus again and I have to do that every day. Friends, that doesn't change for you even those of us who know Jesus. And for those of you who don't know, you may think that Christians have it together. I've got news for you. We have no clue. We don't. We pretend, but we don't have it together. Because there are constant wars in our hearts. We're no different from you. In the sense that the only thing that changes us is Jesus Christ. So you and I are born to worship. And in light of that, all of us are created to be in relationship with him. But sometimes what happens is in uh, this life that we have, there's this constant things that battle against it. And in a good way to kind of show it is this something that you might have grown up with. I've seen this when I was growing up. If you can imagine if this is your whole world, which is not showing up there, that's great. All right, don't worry about it. If you can imagine, there's this circle, and in this circle, there is this world. And this world that you live is simply uh, belongs to God. Oh, there you go. Nice. I want you to imagine if this circle represents the world that you live in. And in this world is this little chair, and this chair is sort of like a throne. And on this chair is someone who should be sitting there, but in reality, it's you. You're on that chair. You rule. You reign this world. And someone who should be sitting on it, either he's out here represented by the cross, that is Jesus, or he may be in your life, but in reality, he's not actually in charge. See, the Christian faith calls for us to live a life such as this, where he is the ruler And he reigns. He's the loving king who loves and cares for us. But what happens in the Christian life sometimes, whoever we are, this can sometimes happen. We don't mean it to. What happens is something else replaces it. 
Sure, we may not have Jesus out of our lives. He's there. But it may be the pursuit of that dream home. It may be the pursuit of a loved one. It's meant to be a heart, by the way. (laughs) What is it that's going on? I mean, what is it right now, whether if you are someone who knows Jesus and don't know, what is it right now that is drawing your affections away from him? In light of this passage, there were two responses. The first response are some who turn around and just make fun of Paul and say, mate, you're a joke. Some who are curious and they want to do further investigation. Maybe you're here listening to this and thinking, oh, here we go, this is the boring bit, the churches do the sermon, and maybe you think to yourself, this is ridiculous, I can't believe these people think that. I can't believe these people are actually doing this baptism stuff, it sounds weird, what a joke. Hey, welcome to Canary Gardens Community Church. We love you. We deeply love you. We're glad that you're here. We want to thank you for coming, maybe even supporting your friends that are here. Or maybe you've just come checking us out. We want to say you're, you're welcome. And we hope and pray that Jesus will constantly soften your heart. And maybe some of us this morning, you're not quite convinced. You're sitting here and thinking, oh, I'm not really sure, Shabu. How do I know if the Bible's true? How do I know all this stuff is really true? Can I encourage you, don't leave this Sunday just being on the Sunday that you forget about it. Pursue those conversations. Maybe talk to your friend. Maybe uh, talk to the one who brought you here. Maybe talk to Andrea or to Josh or come and chat to uh, John or myself. Another thing you can do is grab one of these Bibles that's here. It's free. It's your our gift to you. But please don't read it on your own. We would love to journey with you. Ask one of your friends to read with you. Later on, I'll be showing you some books that you can grab. I've got a few copies here. I want to give it to you. If you're really interested about it, come and chat to me. I'd love to give it to you. You might be not ready at a stage of reading the Bible. You're not even sure if you want to come to a church service yet. Maybe this books, these books will help you explore that. And finally, you're welcome any Sunday. We have two services, 9 a.m., 10.30. Come along. We'd love for you to come along with us. Or maybe go to the foyer. They have small groups. All the small groups... You don't have to be a Christian to go there. We would welcome you to come and be part of it and journey with us. Or maybe it's clicked this morning. And if that is you, Jesus has been pursuing, and you know that your heart has been drawn to him to worship him. Can I just lead you in this prayer? If this is true, know that the words don't save you. It's what's going on in your heart. And if you feel comfortable, say this with me quietly in your hearts. Jesus, I have worshipped other gods and not you. Please forgive me. Come into my heart and take your rightful place. Fill me with your spirit. Reveal more of yourself to me each day. In Jesus' name. And if that's something that you've said, please come and chat to myself or John or your friends who brought you along. We'd love to encourage you in this. And if you know Jesus, I want to encourage you once again that you and I live in a world that have friends around us who are drawn away to worship everything else but God. And you and I have been given this mission to make known the God who was unknown to them in Jesus Christ. And finally, do you still believe that Jesus saves? In chapter 18, verse 9 Paul is told by Jesus, do not be afraid, but go and speak him. Do not be silent, for I am with you. 
Paul has been journeying for a while and you see that he has a bit of a, uh, a frustration point with those who are Jewish who are not responding to the gospel and he um, says, that's it, I'm done, I'm going to the Gentiles, those who are non-Jewish. And I think I was struck by this because for those of us who've been in the Christian faith for a long time, sometimes the danger for us is we look around in the world around us and go, ah, it's all over, it's all done. Friends, Jesus hasn't come back yet. Sometimes I hear Christians say, oh, I can't wait for Jesus just to come back. And I sometimes think they go, wait, that? some people haven't heard the gospel. So it's easy for those of us who know the gospel to yearn for Jesus to come back, and we should. But there are many of those who are in our city who have not heard of Jesus. They are worshipping other things and somebody else. There are friends of yours in your neighbourhood, family members in your schools, in your workplace, who our hearts are yearning to worship the one they were designed for. So can I encourage you, just as the servant Paul was, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. And in light of this, go and love and serve those around you. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a great saviour. You are our great Lord. We thank you that we were designed to worship you and you alone. We pray for those of our friends here today who are kind of exploring you. Please reveal more of yourself. For us who know you, show us. What have we replaced our worship of you with? Please take your rightful place again in our hearts. And Lord, we celebrate with Andrew and Josh. We thank you for the privilege to witness this. We pray as we head out now and, and, and um, continue to worship you and, and see these two wonderful people baptized, we'll just rejoice in that. We pray this in your name. Amen. Um, as John's coming up, some books I just want to recommend to you. Counterfeit Gods was the quote I just made. Uh, and I made. This is Tim Keller. This is the book, Counterfeit Gods. Come and read it. It talks about idolatry, what that means, particularly in our world. Uh, if you're someone of the Christian faith and you're finding it hard to struggle with this idea of grace of God, what does that actually mean? This is a great little book called Prodigal God by Tim Keller again. I'll explain that in a minute. And this is a good book called The Reason for God in the Age of Skepticism. If you have all your doubts about the Christian faith, this is a good starting point. Uh, now, the reason why I said Tim Keller, it's not because I get royalties from Tim Keller or anything. These are the books I've read. These are the books that I know. Uh, and then finally, why did Jesus have to die? What's the point? Uh, this is a great little summary of that. Come and grab these. I'd love to give to you as a gift. Thanks, John.